Many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with the Sherlock Holmes stories. I was uh, reading a few of them recently, and they're always entertaining. But what you always need to remember about those stories is that the importance is always in the details. Sherlock Holmes is able to solve these crimes because he pays attention to details that other people miss. I mention that because today I think is an example of where that's often true in the scriptures as well, is that what we're asked to do is to pay attention to details, and that's what helps us understand what's going on. I'd like to speak to you today about John chapter 21, which we just heard read, and how it is that the details in this story tell us something about how Christ reconciles those who mess up, how it is that it gives us hope when we fail, but also the challenge it gives us to reach out to the world that needs to hear Jesus' message of reconciliation and hope. As we begin then, uh, I wanted to look at a sort of a close reading of this to see where some of those really important details come from, because I think looking at those details will help us understand what this reading is about. Notice what uh, this passage starts out as. Jesus has already risen from the dead. We're told from the beginning, after these things, Jesus showed himself. That means after Jesus showed himself to Thomas and said, put the the finger in the nail holes. We heard all of that last week. So it's after all of those things, Jesus appears again. And it looks like the disciples have gone off back to Galilee. They're back in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had appeared to them in Jerusalem. And now they go back to their hometowns, going back to what they usually do. You may remember Peter and James and John and Andrew were all fishermen. Here's what's interesting here. What we find is that these guys are out on the boat and they're doing uh, fishing throughout all the night, and they have, if you're a fisherman, have that experience of never having caught a single thing despite having spent the entire day out there. Well, then Jesus appears on the shore. He says, have you found no fish? Well, then cast some to the other side, and they pull in uh, 153 large fish, and they find that though they hadn't caught anything all night, when Jesus says, they get these fish. Now, here's the detail that I find really interesting. Do you remember ever hearing this story before? See, this story is a story that is at the end of John's gospel after Jesus has done everything with these disciples and he's showed himself and he's resurrected from the dead and then they're back to their old ways. This is actually almost exactly the same story as we heard in Luke chapter 5 at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry because we find then uh, the Peter, there fishing, James and John, the son of Zebedee, they're fishing. And Jesus says, have you caught anything? No. And he says, well, cast your net to the other side of the boat. And what happens? A giant bunch of fish are gathered. The net isn't torn. They come to the shore. And then Jesus says, follow me. Do you notice how this passage ended after he's speaking with Peter? Verse uh, 19. After this, he said to him, follow me. That detail is really important because it lets us know that Jesus is calling these disciples again to follow him after in many ways they abandoned him. He begins the story in Luke's gospel saying, come and follow him. They all say, fantastic, I want to follow you. And then all of them fall away. And Jesus gives another call story here to say, do you remember back a few chapters ago, a few years ago when I called you to follow me and you didn't do it very well? Come back and follow me again. One of the first things we see here is is that Jesus is calling people who've really messed up and saying, I want you to follow me again. Here's another interesting detail. Do you notice that in John's gospel, he doesn't just say the disciples were in the boat. He names certain people. Listen to the people that he names and see if you're paying attention. This is a Bible trivia quiz. What these guys all have in common. Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Some random disciples are there in the boat with him. What's in common about all these named persons? 
Do you remember how Nathanael from Cana and Galilee is called? Nathanael is called. Another disciple says, come, we found the Messiah. And do you know what Nathanael says in response? <laughs> how can anything good ever come out of Nazareth? That guy messes up pretty good. Do you remember what we heard last week about Thomas? Thomas says in chapter 11, when Jesus says, I'm going uh, to Judea because Lazarus has fallen asleep, Thomas says, right on, Jesus, we'll go and die with you. And then what does he do last week? I'm not even going to believe it. Even though you, all my brother disciples, and even though Mary Magdalene has all said you've seen Jesus, I won't believe it. Thomas messes up pretty big. What do we find the sons of Zebedee doing? The sons of Zebedee are people who are, uh, Jesus nicknames them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And he does this because they're hot-headed and impetuous. Uh, in uh, the Gospel of uh, Matthew, I believe it is, uh, when Jesus is um, rejected by a town in Samaria, James and John say, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven and destroy him. And Jesus rebukes them. You don't get it. That's not how I do things. In Matthew chapter 20, we find uh, James and John have not learned anything because they bring their mummy along next with them. And James and John and their mummy come to Jesus and say, when you rise and come into your kingdom, let us be sitting at your left hand and your right and rule with you. And Jesus rebukes them and says, anybody who wants to be great must be servant of all. They really get things wrong. And of course, many of us will remember Peter most famously because Peter, at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, um, uh, you're all going to abandon me, Peter says, well, maybe the rest will, but I'm not going to. And he says, Peter, look, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And that's exactly what happened. So these are all people who royally mess up. They've gone back to their old ways of life. They're not out evangelizing. They're not out preaching. They're not out bringing people to Christ. They're back doing what they had always done. And Jesus, when he stands on the seashore, he doesn't say, you ingrates, I have a harsh word for you. He says, children, have you caught anything? There's a father figure coming and saying, not you guys are all hard-headed jerks, but instead you are wayward children. I'm calling you back. You know, one of the things that I, I really remember about my grandma was how often it was that I would always associate a nice warm meal with my grandma's house. I lived, I had the for good fortune of living about a 20-minute walk from my grandma and grandpa when I was growing up. And in fact, my other grandma, who unfortunately passed away when I was 13, she also just lived a few blocks away from my school. So many times I would go and walk to grandma's house and she'd feed me lunch. Uh, and uh, my other grandma, whenever she would see me coming down the lane, she would put on a pot of hot water because she would always cook pierogies for me. They were Ukrainians. And that sense of this, this, this hominess and the sense that I, I want you to come and have a refuge here. What Jesus does when he calls these people who have really messed up is that he comes and says, come and have some breakfast. That's the first thing he says. And they're having breakfast and Jesus doesn't say anything until they've had a full warm meal. And, and you can think too about how it is that, that you gather around the campfire and, and you, you can almost see and, 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 and hear the crackle of the fire and the, the smoke and and, and Jesus is there cooking for them. In fact, the imagery here, he says he, he puts fish and he puts bread on. on it it's almost has a sort of a Eucharistic undertone there and that Jesus is breaking bread with his disciples and saying, I've not cast you out of my fellowship here. But instead, I want you to feel, first of all, comfort because I'm comforting a child who's messed up. Here's another interesting detail. What Jesus or what John's gospel does too is really interesting. Do you remember some of the details around Peter denying Jesus? He's in the courtyard while Jesus is being questioned. And so Peter denies Jesus three times while he's out there. 
The other gospels mention they are warming themselves by a fire, but you know the little detail John gives us? John says there was a charcoal fire there in the courtyard. What does John tell us about this fire? He says it is a charcoal fire. Interesting in that detail there, it's meant to twig on memory. Do you notice how many times Jesus speaks uh, and asks Peter, do you love me? Three times. You notice when Peter breaks down and feels sorrowful because in the third time he realizes, aha, Jesus is getting on to something. It was three times I messed up. And Jesus asked me three times, do you love me? Why does he not say, Peter, what were you thinking? Three times. Peter, explain yourself three times. But Peter, do you love me three times? What Jesus is asking is not whether you messed up. He knew that Peter messed up. In fact, he predicted that Peter would mess up. Why does he say three times? What he's saying is, why did you mess up, Peter? Did you mess up for the reason Judas did, which is you hated me and wanted to destroy me? Or did you mess up because although you wanted to do the right thing, you were too weak to stand in the time of trouble and failed because of weakness and not out of malice? Now, all of this is so really interesting to me because I think it's a really great way of speaking to us who sometimes are fearful in the way that we walk with Jesus. Because many times I think that all of us probably have the same experience as me. And that experience is something touches you. Maybe you've heard a good sermon. Maybe you've been moved by music and worship. Or maybe you read a good book or you had a good conversation and something wells up inside you and Jesus starts calling to you and saying, you know what, now is the time to take a step forward in faith. Maybe there's something that's consistently gone wrong in your life and Jesus says, now is the time to tackle this. You know, now is the time uh, to tackle better nutrition and, and health because this body I gave you, the temple of the Holy Spirit, should be cared for. You honor me in the way that you care for your body. Or maybe uh, you need to spend more time with your children. You've been ignoring your spouse or you've been not paying attention to the things that are most important. Or maybe now is the time for you to, to humble yourself and seek forgiveness for something that you've done wrong. But if you're like me and you feel those times where Jesus calls to you and says, I want you to take a step forward in faith and do something difficult, there's a little voice that also goes off in the back of my head right after Jesus speaks from my heart. That little voice says, you know, you're just going to mess it up, right? I mean, you don't want to have to go to Jesus and say, I really tried, but I tripped and fell on my face, so probably you shouldn't even bother. How many of us find ourselves discouraged by that voice before we even start because we know that Jesus calls us to be a better person? We look in the mirror and say, there are certainly things that need to change in our life, and I know, Jesus, you want me to change them, but we're afraid of stepping forward in faith because we're afraid of failing. All of the people, however, in this boat were people who were impetuous, who made big promises that they couldn't deliver on. And instead of Jesus saying, you are so stupid for making those promises, instead he says, the real question I have for you is, do you love me? Because if you do, I can tell you something, that you will continue to be welcome in my company. And more than that, I will give you an important task. Jesus says to Peter three times, he doesn't just say, I forgive you. Three times he says, feed my lambs, tend my lamb, or tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He takes Peter, who is messed up, and says, Peter, I have an important task for you. In fact, at the very end, it's really interesting because Jesus doesn't just say, uh, Peter, now you've got an important task. He says something interesting to Peter in parting that we are told by John's gospel has very great significance. He says, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt, go wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death by which you would glorify God. Peter, you didn't have the strength the first time when you were uh, confronted 
Are you a disciple of Jesus? No, I'm not. What does Jesus say? He says, when the time of trial comes again and you are confronted, this time you won't fail. Why? Because Jesus' power, his grace, will work through this weak man whose heart is in the right place and make him strong enough to proclaim that Jesus is Lord even when it will cost him his death. There's a very long and I think very solid tradition that says Peter was martyred for his faith. Uh, and he was martyred for his faith because when in the moment of truth he refused to deny Jesus, even though three times he had done it when Jesus was under trial. It's an encouragement for us to say, don't be afraid to swing and miss sometimes. Instead, be afraid of never trying because you're so afraid of what God's rebuke will be. That's not how God operates. He asks where your heart is, and if your heart longs to do what is right, trust him that he will pick you up, that it will feed you a nice warm breakfast and say, yes, you belong with me. And I still have a great task for you, even though you didn't do so good the first time. Whether it's the first time he's calling you or the hundredth time, remember, Jesus calls you because he wants what's good for you. And he has an important and valuable task for you in life. That's an encouraging message from John 21. But here's the other thing that I think is a challenge. I mentioned to you it's important to have details because it tells us what we do when we mess up and comforts us and encourages us when we mess up. But there's also, I think, a real challenge we see when we pay attention to the details of this story. Here's an interesting, fun fact. If you know the Bible well, you will notice that there's lots of differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Particularly, you read through things like Leviticus, parts of the Old Testament, and you just think, this, what is this? You're sprinkling blood around, and you're doing this and that, and, and it's hard to know what's going on. But one thing that's an interesting little detail is how often fish show up in the Old Testament as opposed to the New. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, right? But it's interesting. The Old Testament almost never mentions fish. And in fact, not only that, I don't believe that there's a single time in the Old Testament where anybody has ever mentioned eating fish. Do you know what happens in the New Testament? There's fish all over the place. Who are the, the first people that Jesus calls? Fishermen. What's the first thing he does uh, for those disciples to make them want to follow him? Catch a bunch of fish. What does uh, Jesus uh, do when he's called to pay the temple tax? Jesus says, uh, go out, go fishing, and you'll find a fish with a coin in its mouth. Grab the fish, take the coin, and pay your temple tax. But this fish, weird. And of course, how often uh, fish show up later, too, is that Jesus, when he feeds 5,000 people, he doesn't just have bread. He has loaves and fish. The first fish fry, right? 5,000 people fed with these pieces of fish. When Jesus is resurrected, what does he ask for? He doesn't say, do you have any lamb around? He says, give me a piece of fish. And he eats fish in their presence in Luke's gospel to show that he's risen from the dead. He's a real body. And what do we find here? We find Jesus roasting fish by the seashore. Now, all of those things may seem like, okay, that's an irrelevant kind of detail. But in fact, they aren't. One of the things that I think is, is subtle if, you, if, if you're not paying close attention, but it's very real that the Old Testament is primarily concerned with the people of Israel. Israel is always mentioned as sheep or as goats or other land animals. The kings, the prophets, the priests, all of them are farmers or shepherds or, or other ranchers. They're all things based on the land and throughout the entire Old Testament, the waters, the sea, and fish all represent Gentiles. Throughout the Old Testament, we find that the focus is on Israel, and the New Testament is the turning point in history where God says, I will be incorporating Gentiles 
and all the world into my kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 5 after he catch, oh, they catch all those fish? And Peter says, I'm a man of unclean lips, depart from me. Jesus says, do not be afraid. From this point forward, I'll make you fishers of men. I will make you fish for people. I think one of the things that he's talking about here, when he pulls out all those fish again, and he says to Peter, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, he's saying, you have an important role, Peter, of being both a person who tends all of the Jewish disciples who've come to me. At this point, they're all Jews. But also an important task in reaching out to the Gentiles and bringing them into the faith. Although later on, St. Paul is anointed as the, the apostle to the Gentiles, it is Peter, notably, who is the first person in the book of Acts to ever baptize a Gentile. Peter is praying while he's in Joppa. He prays, and he falls asleep while he's praying, and God shows him a dream of all these unclean animals that the Gentiles eat, and him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I can't do that. And God says, don't, make, don't say what I've created and made clean, and don't call it unclean. And then as soon as he wakes up from the dream, there's a knock on the door, coming from Cornelius, a Gentile, asking him to come to his house because he too received a dream. And there, Cornelius and his household speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit comes, and Peter says, I can't stop myself from baptizing you, even though you're a Gentile. Peter has been called to reach out to the world around, beyond the comfortable borders of Israel, to share the gospel with those who did not know the God of Israel. Now, where does that come in for us? There's the challenge for us. We talk about how it's tough to step out in faith for doing the things that improve ourselves, but i got to tell you, uh, A, as Anglicans, and particularly as Canadian Anglicans, probably the most difficult thing God calls us to do is share our faith with the people around us. Man, we're afraid of doing that, I tell you. Anglicans have a long history of sort of being integrated in society. We're part of, you know, a king and country, and we want to fit in very much, and it doesn't make you fit in when you start talking about Jesus. And of course, we're Canadians, and what do we do? When we run into a chair, we apologize to it, right? It's like, oh, I'm sorry. The last thing I want to do is shove my faith in your face. We just don't want to be that guy. If you've ever been on the receiving end, and often it's Americans, i got to say stereotypically, but it often is, the, you know, a too aggressive a push, do you know Jesus? And you just think, ugh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that guy. And I don't want to be the person who pushes people away. Fair enough. But let's be honest, is that really the danger we're in? I'm so on fire for Jesus, I can't stop evangelizing. I don't think that's the danger we're in. I think the danger we're in is instead sort of saying, Jesus, I'm glad you, you love me when I make mistakes, and I'm glad that I'm called to be part of this flock. I don't think we find it easy, however, to just reach out beyond the flock. You know, one of the things that I think is really excellent that actually does come out of the Anglican Church, out of England, is uh, Thy Kingdom Come. We've been doing this for several years. And this is an initiative by the Archbishop of Canterbury, so the top dog in the Anglican world. And here this person has suggested that, you know, all of us are different people, right? Some are really, it's very easy to talk about our faith. For other people, it's really hard for us to do. We have different personalities. The question Thy Kingdom Come always asks us is, do you really hope that the friends and family and neighbors and people out there in the world, do you really hope that they hear the good news of Jesus? However it happens. Maybe it's you speaking it. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's God directly visiting them one night and saying it's time to change your life. But here's the real question. Do you want what Jesus wants for the world around us? Do you want the lost to be found? Do you want the blind to have sight? Do you want those who live in darkness to see light? What's great about thy kingdom come is it says, you know, you may not know how to do this, but what you can do 
is pray for people in your life and ask that God, in whatever way God chooses, bring something to their life to make them realize how much Jesus loves them. Are we doing that? Taking that simple step of praying for the people who may have wandered from Christ, who may uh, maybe be sundered from the church because the church has hurt them. Are we people committed enough to actually pray for people around us to come to know Christ for who he is? And are we courageous enough to say that, God, when you put something in my heart to say something or do something, will we say yes, even if we might mess it up? One of the great things about following Jesus, as we say, is that he knows what he's getting into when he calls you. He knows he's not getting Mr. Perfect or Miss Perfect. What he knows is that he's getting a flawed person, but he still calls you. and says, I want to use flawed people to further and advance my kingdom because flawed people like you and me are the ones God wants to help flawed people like those outside the church. Not because they're more evil than us, but because they, like us, need a shepherd and a guide to bring us on the right path. So what's our challenge? Our challenge today is to say, do I want what you want, Jesus, to make your kingdom grow, even amongst those who are different than us, and then we might be fearful of. Pray for those folks. Pick up a stack of those door hangers and put them on the, the hangers of your neighborhood. Simple ways of doing things that make Christ known, while at the same time avoiding the things that push people away from the faith. So what do we remember from today? Don't be afraid of messing up in the cause of following Christ because he knows you're going to do it and he still wants you with them. And secondly, don't uh, ignore the challenge of reaching out in faith to bring others to Christ because he's the one who's doing the heavy lifting. All he wants you to do is to be an ambassador that shows that flawed people are capable of sharing faith in flawed ways and still finding great results because the Lord of heaven and earth loves flawed people like you and me and chooses to use flawed people like you and me to do great things.